welcome back to Poetry Says for 2017. I'm Alice. I'm really happy to have you here. And I'm happy to be back in Australia, not recording from any more crazy places. Just normal old Melbourne. Very excited. And I'm very, very happy to be bringing you this interview today. I had the chance to talk to an old friend. Uh, his name is Robin Wallace Crabb. And I used to do a bit of work for him back when I lived in Canberra. I used to work on a website called Chewy that he was putting together. And it was sort of a collection of poems and art and longer written pieces. And once I finished up that work, Robin gave me um, a poem with two etchings on each side called Egyptians. And this poem has kind of followed me around the place since then I've brought it with me and it's become one of my favorites I've just read it so many times I've had it sitting above my piano above my desk and I just love the opening line so much it says they told me early the world is nearly at an end it sounds pretty dark it's not really very representative um, of the kind of poems that we'll be talking about today so these poems are by a man called Hartman Wallace. So at the end of this image that Robin gave me, it says, by Hartman Wallace. And it took me an awfully long time to realize that Hartman Wallace is just Robin's pen name. I didn't realize this. Although it's a little bit more than a pen name, as, uh, as Robin will explain to you in this interview. So just recently I came across a review in The Australian by Peter Keneally, of a number of books and one of them was Who Said What Exactly by Hartman Wallace with drawings by Phil Day and this is out by a publisher called Finley Lloyd and I thought oh my god Hartman Hartman's out there he's doing stuff again and so I found Robin's email address and got back in touch with him and I was so happy to be able to chat to him about how he came up with the book how he came up with Hartman, the character, and all the absurdity and fun and harshness and hilariousness that goes into his writing. And it was a really good chat for me to have on this particular day too. I was definitely in that headspace that you get into sometimes where you're thinking much more about what everyone else is doing and not really appreciating what you're doing yourself it's never good enough it kind of feels like a competition and talking to Robin kind of brought me back to a much healthier headspace where as he says art is actually quite fun so I hope you enjoy this one and welcome back to Poetry Says Well, do you want to get straight into it and tell us the story of Hartman Wallace? Yeah, we might as well, do you think? That would be great. Yeah. Well, I can't exactly remember when uh, Hartman first started having poems published, but he he emerged because um, you probably know that my um, my brother's a poet. Right. Yes, I did know that. Yeah, and he's also was a professor at Melbourne University and so on and so forth. 
and uh, I I left school early and because I didn't like being educated, yeah, and I left art school early because I didn't like being educated, mm-hmm. and so I've got a sort of funny sort of side to me, which is that I I suppose that's why I finished up living out in the country. First of the t- first of all in Gippsland and then in um, in um, Braidwood, sort of an hour from Canberra, on farms and farming and things because it's sort of that, that there's one side to the sort of literature and the art scene that I didn't like, and which was the scene itself. Yep, you can definitely days. you can hear that throughout the book, and that is something <laughs> that. Peter Keneally says in the review in The Australian, it says, an acerbic view of the literary and artistic world. Yes, I thought. Do you know Peter Keneally? No, I don't, but it's a lovely review. I was amazed. I was absolutely stunned because it was the sort of review that normally, because Phil doesn't know him either, and um, he, I think he, but he could obviously tell that Hartman Wallace was a fictitious character, Mm -hmm. and that's not hard to to deduct from looking at the book, I guess. You'd be surprised how long it took me. I've had this poem of Hartman's up on my wall for many years with your name written under it and it took me a long time to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I want to believe, Robin. (laughs) Well, I like, I I love the idea of Hartman and in fact, he's become, because he's been around for so long, he's become almost like a genuine part of my personality um, and a beautiful escape because I'm not sure if you knew, but I I used to publish books. Under your own name? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'd written um, oh, quite a number of books, uh, some of which were published under the name of Robert Wallace because the English publisher didn't like the Robin Wallace crowd, thought it was a bit poncy, which it is. Hmm. Um, and so changed it to Robert Wallace, and they were books about a, uh, a, 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 a an art forger. And there, were, I think, there were five of them published in both England by by Victor Gollance and by a big publisher in New York as well, which was mm-hmm. sort of strange. But they obviously liked something about them, and uh, then they stopped publishing them, and I stopped writing them. Thank heavens. Um, but within the case of Hartman, he's just a lovely thing to have in my mind as an extra person who was the... I'm not sure how many voices you have in your head, but once I passed a certain age, and this was probably my by the time I was about 40, there was a voice at the back of my head saying, you stupid old git. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have one of those, and <laughs> yeah. there's, there's definitely and one too many in there, that's for sure. <laughs> and it's a good thing in a way, because it stops you going mm. the, that whole way into being a totally up-yourself sort of person. And so having Hartman it was like having a little kind of moral policeman living in the back of my head, <laughs> saying, come on, get on with it, you git. And, okay. Uh, and don't be so, because even in 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 the visual arts, I've met people who will say, "Oh, for heaven's sake, you're not using pure art artist quality paints here." And I'm like, 
what you're saying there, you, you come and say, come closer and say that, okay? <laughs> sort of thing. Because ultimately it's the picture. It's not whether it's done in pure artist quality paints. So he's kind of born out of frustration as well as playfulness, Hartman. Yes, yes, out of the two things. And it was, so here's this person who can, who whenever I'd sit down to write a Hartman poem, this other voice would come out quite freely and fluently. And also another thing which helped, I think, me create Hartman or make me want to create Hartman was in noticing that there were some Northeastern American poets who, in the 1940s and 50s, in the sort of something a bit like the hippie movement, who just used street language and just wrote down what they were thinking rather than finding these very sort of self-promotional metaphors and things that the poems were full of. Okay, who are you thinking of there? Oh, uh, you see, being senile, I can't remember their names. Mm. <laughs> but there were... <laughs> I think uh, I, I know, like, the, is it sort of like the Ginsberg, or that's Northwestern, Ginsburg I and those people, yeah. exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And they, there was a refreshingly a refreshing voice they were using. I mean, you write poetry. Mm. <laughs> Groan. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you're talking about. It's it's the There is definitely... Even in Australia, where I suppose if you were overseas, you would think, oh, they must all write in a very colloquial, relaxed way. There is a, a, a very kind of um, structured and formal, I guess, for lack of a better word, style that some people write in, and then there's a more conversational style. Um, yes. Yeah. And I think, I think that, um, uh, that certainly... A lot of our culture has this, uh, Australian literary culture, has been determined by, as it were, the correct English ideas of language, forgetting that nine-tenths of the population of England don't speak like, don't say, oh, hello, very nice. They say, oh, hey, you're yeah, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, and, and they don't use grammar in that most correct way that's drummed into kids at school in Australia um, and so the voice the voice that a lot of people finish up writing in is a voice which is imposed on on us but isn't really part of the natural verbal culture that we've grown up in so true I never thought about it in exactly that way but it totally makes sense I think I would like for you to share a little bit of Hartman at this point, if you're willing to read. Read? Oh, I can't read. Sorry. Oh, please, please. You, you want me to read? Oh, I can okay. read it, but I'm not going to do it justice. <laughs> okay, here we go. Neither am I, I tell you. How about I'll, I'll build a stairway to paradise? Oh, great. Excellent. Oh, mummy, there's an avant-garde artist outside my window, and he reckons he wants to root me stupid. That's nice, my child, but remember to remember all that I have told you, that a girl can't be too careful of sexually transmitted diseases getting into her tubes and ruining her chances of breeding. He says he wants to make a video in the medium of contemporary art of him shagging me till I go all dreamy like happens, he reckons, in Snow White and the Seven Perverts. 
that's nice, my child, but remember to remember that while the medium of contemporary art is an exceptionally fine medium, you still must remember to remember that a girl can't be too careful, particularly at your age, and that wealthy men don't like second-hand goods. As well, you must make sure that he is a truly, really avant-garde artist. And he can't be a truly, really avant-garde artist unless he's done postgraduate studies. So, before he gets your panties off, you must insist on seeing that postgraduate certificate, certainly, before you submit your too easily sexually aroused young parts to the dispassionate gaze of a video camera's lens, you've got to check him out. These days, there are so many underqualified charlatans working, my darling, in the medium of contemporary art. End of poem. You said that line in Snow White and the Seven Perverts exactly as I knew you would. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's like postgraduate it. studies is like, it's like the, um, she needs that as protection, like as yeah. kind of like birth control or something. You know? Exactly. I need to see that. <laughs> oh, and geez. it means that mother's going to know that, you know, this is a really proper person. But who... Is there, do you believe in such a thing as a truly, really avant-garde artist? No. Yeah. Definitely not. I didn't think so. I think that that's one of the things that, uh, another thing that sort of went, well, I think in a way it went wrong with all of art. If you think of, you know, um, oh God, here I go again. The chap who, um, oh, I, I get these sudden blanks in my mind because there's too much rubbish in there. Mm. Um, Me too. Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp, right, and his uh, urinal, yes, as a work of art. Duchamp suddenly says, "There's a work of art. A urinal may be a work of art." And from that point on, you keep on finding artists, young artists, and it's still happening, who will suddenly put a vacuum cleaner in an exhibition and say, "There, that's a work of art." But the point's been made, hasn't it, by Duchamp? Yeah. And you don't need to then put, oh, there's a biro, there's a work of art. And you don't put <laughs> again and again. While it's also true, of course, that all of us make a work of art in our own minds out of whatever we're looking at. And when you become a dear little old man like me, I look out the window. We've got a lovely garden here. And I just keep on seeing human faces in the leaves and on the trunks of the trees. Mm. Um, so in a sort of way... I guess, and children are always imagining things, young children are always imagining things, but I think we can get too, I think you can overtrain artists to be just like, I remember when I was younger, I used to teach in art schools for a while, and there was hard edge abstraction was very big. Do you remember hard edge abstraction? No, I don't know what that is. It was a a strong abstract movement in about 1960s, 70s American art where it was just geometrical shapes of colour okay. with, with neat edges. And so at an art school that I was teaching at in Adelaide, they were teaching the students to uh, stick down masking tape in a straight line and then paint a 
a, a matte varnish up to it so that nothing could creep in underneath the masking tape to make a, a, a nasty edge and then paint a colour up to it and then peel the masking tape off so that you've got a perfect edge between, say, a bright red and a bright blue. Yep. And so his kids went to art school at 16 and 17 and they've got some ponce there teaching them how to do this, <laughs> which really should take about 10 minutes, and then making them sort of make sure they did lovely hard edge paintings right through the year until the final exam sort of thing. So it's not... Right. It's not that you necessarily have uh, any problem with a painting that's put together that way or with Duchamp's urinal, but it's the kind of, it's the stuff that's built around that and the ego that's built around that. Yes, and the rigidities, the absolute style. So if you get, say, 20 kids go to art school, having been at high school, they're all different minds, they're all different imaginative processes, they're also, and suddenly they're all told this is what you've got to do if you want to pass you've got to stick this bit of sticky tape down and get a nice edge on it yeah uh which house painters of course know how to do because they do it when they're painting around windows but they don't have to get a diploma of visual art Mm. to, to, to paint around windows there's a line in uh a poem that i think it's the last poem in the book nights with the enemy and it says, Arties are pigs at a trough stenciled the misfortunes of others. Is that right? Have I got that from the right poem? Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to find it. Just yeah. So, Come on, you stupid old git. Come on, you can do it. You can do it, Robin. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, okay. Approximations of the euro or the US dollar sign. Arties mm-hmm. are pigs at a trough stenciled. Yes, absolutely got it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Conscripted. Dave, I lost both legs to a landmine. Yep. Yeah, I just, I found um, this poem as a whole was probably one of the most difficult to get my head around. It seems to be kind of saying quite a few things that I've, I'm going to have to dive in deeper to figure it all out. But I, that line just really jumped out at me. I thought, wow, you know, is that, how true is that? Are, are people making art um, mostly interested in the mis- misfortunes of others? Because I've been to plenty of readings and read plenty of books where that subject is given the most kind of weight. I guess yes. if you've got a poem about um, someone who's, you know, like a, a refugee or somebody who commits suicide or someone who is hurting themselves or something like that, it's it's very people are very reverent. But there's something I, else around the edges of that reverence that I find really kind of sick making. I tend to I agree with that. I think that the um though I think there's uh, there's also a, a a rather nasty sort of duality here in that well, certainly in a lot of Australian art we had this um lots of writers and lots of painters and things even say Sidney Nolan and so on would suddenly return to issues like Gallipoli and or to uh, I remember people sort of deliberately doing war paintings uh, to celebrate, as it were, Australia's military might and, and will and so on, while at the same time tending to forget that each individual who was involved in this, most of them didn't get a choice, and they were suddenly shoved in. Next thing, they're pushed out, of, out, of, out into a, 
a North African desert or into something or something, and they're shooting other people at a distance or being shot themselves, and then for the rest of their lives they're sort of semi off their rockers as as a result of this, and yet artists and uh, writers and so on are still writing these wonderful novels of Australia's military excellence and so on, with little bits in to show that it was hard on the people, but forgetting the ruined lives that occurred after these people were out of the, the military. I mean, the way we treated uh, the way we treated the people who fought in Vietnam and the sort of appalling justification or lack of justification for the whole war in Vietnam was was shocking, and I did teach a couple of people who'd fought in Vietnam, one of whom had lost one of his legs afterwards. Uh, that is, he'd lost one of his legs in the war, but uh, I taught them afterwards, and they were really... I mean, the way they would be in the world for the rest of their lives was going to be completely different to the way in which those people with a BA with honours in English who were writing poems about them, <laughs> were going to live their lives. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And it, it kind of reminds me, I guess, or, or makes clear that the focus of those poems is on the battle and the war. And it's it's very unlikely that somebody will write a poem about your student sitting in class without a leg now having to live the rest of their life. Um, I'd never really thought about yeah. it that way before. But yeah, Absolutely. And the funny thing is, when I when they uh, I was called up for, um, oh, when I was uh, <clears throat> 18, I think, I was called up for military service, and I decided to go to court to fight it, but not as a uh, not as a um, as a complete pacifist, but as someone who would was basically pacifist, but would select whether he would want to go or not go to fight somewhere rather than to do whatever an Australian government wanted him to do. Mm -hmm. Because I also, back in those days, was also very much involved with trying to get a bit more justice for Australian Aboriginal people, which, of course, and this a long time ago, I was trying to do that. But that's failed right through my life. I keep on... (laughs) seeing how appallingly large the number of Aboriginal people in jail is and so on and so forth. And once again, these are issues that even people in the arts who decide that they want to seem to have a real concern for things, when you examine what they've written or painted, you don't really see that concern coming through. Wow. Or, or that huma- that apparently, in inverted commas, um, with a bracket, ha-ha, closing bracket, bracket um, a, a real concern and drive to do something to assist these people. Why should you do that, for heaven's sake, when you can write a novel about it and maybe sell the film rights to the novel <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, you know, move from Preston to South Yarra? Oh, my God. What are you saying? <laughs> no one's moving what? down there. Jesus. <laughs> That's a no-go area. That's a no-go. Um <laughs> No, but what is it like, though, to have worked in that area and, as you say, to have seen just zero progress made over such, you know, over a long period? 
Well, I think it, I think it's a terrible, terrible statement about the real push of human, humane uh, ideas in our society. And in fact, there was a review two weeks ago, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald, may have been three weeks ago, of a, the latest book by Geoffrey Blaney. Mm-hmm. You know, a great, I think, Melbourne-based uh, sort of person thing. And this was his latest book, and the reviewer went through it, sort of pointing out all the sort of far right-wing and anti-humanist values that seem to be embedded in that text. And I've noticed that again and again and again when talking to people or dealing with people in relation to these issues, that there's very little real uh, humanity and human, human concern in the actual behavior of people who've been processed by our art system. Because, again, it's all about, oh, look, real artists use this sort of paint, and, oh, you couldn't possibly play a beautiful piece of music unless you were playing a Guadagnini violin, you know, which sells for 1.7 million or something. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be a real musician if you didn't, you know, if you weren't playing one of these things. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, the the, the rules just seem to be... Um, I think as there's a line in the book that kind of addresses this, just the rules are written by one set of people and then everyone else either tries to well, follow them or doesn't. I think that's true. And I remember going to a, a thing. I was um, doing something in Melbourne and there was a a particular uh, prize. I think the... Uh, oh, what's his name? Um, I can't remember his name anyway, but one one very aged professor had set up a prize um, and this was a prize for Aboriginal, an Aboriginal artist, writer or artist or something. And I went to the um, to to the thing in which this prize would be announced, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that amused me was that in, it was a crowded room full of very nicely dressed white people. But what they all failed to do was to forget to maybe try and invite a large number of the people who live in in those days lived in some of the semi-ruined public housing in Fitzroy and so on and so forth and try and genuinely make it something about trying to encourage and help develop this uh, conquered and alienated uh, race of people in Australia because I used to do things up on the Murray and things. I remember, you know, sit on on railway stations at night because a lot of these guys would sleep in railway stations at night and sit there and just drink um, uh, sort of cheap sherry and chat to these people. And these people were so unconnected and there have been... You could tell in conversation, you could tell that these people just... There was a there was a line between them and white society, which was controlling all the land and everything around them, and no one was really doing anything about it whatsoever. Yeah, I had the same experience in uh, up in um, the Northern Territory when I spent a week in a in a, a small Aboriginal community, and 
chatted to people and start with they were amazed that someone would even be there and staying there and chatting. And even the fact that they were amazed by this was a pretty bad comment on the way we, as a as as the people, as it were, who are controlling this society, have handled those people who were living here before any of us arrived and stuffed up their lives. Yeah. I'm well, probably going on too much about no, this. No, this is know. great. Um, I'm, we're basically getting around to it, but I wanted to ask you about Hartman's attitude towards Australia because I think he's got just as an acerbic view of Australia as the literary and artistic world. Um, I think he does. <laughs> is there another poem you'd like to read maybe in that along those lines? <laughs> I'll just I'll just have a look. I'll see what we've got here. Sorry, I'll just be a a second. Um, I've got one here about a flathead. Oh yeah. This is the philosophic flathead at the gate of Horn. Because sometimes you get this feeling. I've got, had this feeling sometimes. Anyway, I'll read the poem. If it probably doesn't have a feeling in it for anyone else. Without a language in which to lay the idea out for himself, yet knowing he'd once been more comfortable in his world, that the great moons were past and shooting stars could no longer shoot for him, the giant flathead did one more lap from Gilbert's Bridge on the highway to that sandbar which looked like it would never be breached again despite the ocean's best endeavours. And, indeed, the spring tide's excesses not to mention his own fishy beseeching, addressed to what? Still, garbage copulates with phosphates at the foam-laced water's edge. Prepare, is what tomorrow says. But why would a flathead listen to that? At the side of his mouth a hook, still telling its story. No one stops to listen or see or care. For that matter, brackish water of what was once the free-flowing Duffy's Creek is loud with the vibration of cars crossing Gilbert's Bridge on the highway, a timber structure still two lanes, steel-tipped piles driven into bedrock, clogging the mind flow of a battle-scarred fish. Yes, being in Duffy's Creek is everything. All what addressed to what. Next, splat, a crap-filled plastic bag hits the water. End of poem. What an ending. <laughs> what an ending. Uh, there's, some, there's a feeling for me that runs through that poem, which pops up in a, a number of the other ones, which is this question of who cares. And I think there's a few lines where you say, who the hell cares, or we were on the first fleet, who cares? And it's yeah. not, it, but it's not like a belligerent who cares. It's there's almost underneath it. There's a real question of like, does anyone actually care about this? Yes. Yeah. And I think I think it's a real problem. Even I'm even I mean, if I was to hear what we're talking about, if I was myself was there as a third party though listening, I'd be saying, stupid old Hartman, why is he going on about this? What does he ever do about it? Look, he's sitting on an armchair. He's talking on the phone, you know, and so in a kind of way, uh, who cares is an answer. And also, there's a sort of global view that almost nothing we do is going to save us from ourselves 
or from the outcomes of our own sort of materialist obsessions and so on and so forth. And I'm just as materialist, I guess, as anyone else, um, except I've got to a stage now where I don't ever go anywhere. <laughs> so your, carb- your carbon footprint is very limited. It's very, exactly. it's very local. <laughs> I walk from this house because we eventually I got being when I got over seventy, I had to get rid of the farm we had, which wasn't a big farm or anything, but and so we now live on on a, in a nice garden right at the edge of Braidwood and I walk into town once a day and go up to our post office box and see if there's anything in it and breathe out with relief when there isn't and then I walk back home and occasionally I stop and have a quick chat to someone along the way (laughs) and that's uh, whereas people I know tell me oh look they've just come back from um, you know Serbia and I think back from Serbia hell I've been to the post office <laughs> so that's where I've got to sort of thing and I'm quite happy being there I think it's it's uh, it's absurd because there is I think uh, and I'm not into jumping off bridges or anything but I think there is an absurdity <clears throat> absurd side to making art there's an absurd side even to our own being which I don't think should allow oneself to be depressed but maybe to at least chuckle yeah well that's i wouldn't want anyone to hear us talking about this amazing book and think that it is in any way dark or depressing because it is harsh and acerbic but it's also hilarious and there's absurdity all the way through it especially around australiana the australian absurdity of things like home makeover shows the indoor plant servicing band pops up there that definitely made me laugh (laughs) <laughs> and uh, there's a self-grooming Burmese cat in one of the poems as well. And like both ends of the spectrum, you know, the, the sort of the high class Australian absurdity and then the, the more lower class, I guess. Um, but you're you're laughing all the way and it's just so much fun. Well, that's one of the nice things about Hartman. And the uh, I, I think actually uh, inventing Hartman <clears throat> was really good for me because also... I'm not sure, but the uh, I suppose maybe it's an obsession with being called Robin Wallace Crab, which when I was younger was a real pain in the neck. I remember when we first came to Braidwood uh, and we'd bought this smallish farm outside Braidwood and someone came to the front gate because the house was right on the road, come to the front gate and he started shouting, do you mind if I use the F word? Go ahead. You fucking middle-class shithead. You know, what do you think you're fucking doing here, you fuckhead? You Wallace hyphen, what is it? What a Wallace. And <laughs> Wallace hyphen, I'm what st- is it? <laughs> and I'm staring staring at this guy and thinking, oh, God, here we go. This is like when I used to go to school, you know. People mm. say, oh, Robin Wallace Crabb, what sort of a name's that, eh? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a real ponce, you know. Anyway, so I say to this guy, why don't you come this side of the fucking gate? Come on and have another go. And he says, oh, no, no, it's all right. Okay, see you later. Yeah, yeah. Ah. <laughs> so I had to, as it were, pretend that I was this masculine, real person who could tell him to go and stuff himself. And then, of course, I went back inside and got him my slingbacks. Yep. <laughs> Maybe, uh, what's a good French brand of slingback? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. 
uh, Manolo Blonix, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that Hartman's been a really good, you know, he's a nice invention. And I think a lot of people actually I know, whether they've got silly names or not, can almost get tired of running that persona. Yeah. Gets kind of calcified, and then you become all these things that everyone's ever thought of you. And in a way, I guess, and especially if you're publishing, I suppose, and if you've got sort of a public persona. Yes. Yeah. Oh, very much so. I think there, and um, and it's, and also, of course, looking back, and when I was younger, when I first started getting books published, for instance, I remember. At that stage, I had a sort of slightly rather poncy pride of, oh, you know, good Lord, um, here, um, oh, yes, oh, yes, um, that's me, yeah, oh, yeah, hey, they're publishing my book. And then somehow, perhaps if I was getting drunk with someone, I would bring this up in conversation. Look, I just had a book uh, being published in, in England. You know, in England. How about that, eh? Mm-hmm. You know? And... Uh, <laughs> And you look back on that and you think, oh, get a life. <laughs> well, I mean, it's totally understandable to be to be proud of that kind of thing. But I know what you're saying. It's like that that becomes the, the be-all and end-all. It's like that, that conversation that you have and that person's response to the fact that you've been published in England, like that's the goal rather than writing something that's really exciting. I mean, I think the first poem... In the book, it starts out, um, if you don't mind. They don't make poems like they used to anymore. I'm thinking about poems with stories, the sort of thing to excite teenagers, to make men languishing in jail feel better about their potential. Um, you know, that's yes. that's a goal. <laughs> yes. Instead, poems read like shit. <laughs> tell you things these days about what someone feels when staring at water. I love that. Are there too many poems about wordies staring at liquids? Not that I've noticed. That's How so about good. gazing at mirrors, like where mere mortals check out makeup smears on glass? Licensed poets get off on how a love life is shattered, or maybe some epiphany, which is a word they'll use too often and at the drop of a hat. People out here in don't give us any more poetry land, what might cause us to return to those different length lines, don't know, kind of, and so on. Yeah. And so on. And so on. <laughs> yeah, there's no, um, I love the fact that there is no, Hartman never needs to make a definite statement. He's really comfortable saying, don't know, sort of, or yeah. starting poems with, they told me. Um, or throwing whatever and like and who the hell cares and all that sort of stuff and it's just so much relief in that for me as a reader I'm just I just feel really relaxed (laughs) well one of the funny things about it is that um, uh, like because we were going to talk to one another I did read these some of these poems again before before we had this uh, we started this conversation Mm -hmm. and when I started, when I was going to do that, once again, this sort of old man's dread was full of, was inside me. But I kept on chuckling while I was reading the poems and enjoying it. So I think inventing Hartman Wallace was really good. Maybe psychiatrists should 
could should uh, recommend to people that they invent another person. <laughs> I've definitely considered it. It seems like a great idea, and <laughs> and I think I I would guess that if you if we were sitting here talking about Robin Wallace Crabbe's, you know, eighth collection of poetry, you would be feeling very different and a lot more kind of it would be a lot more fraught i guess oh i think so and i'd also be terrified (laughs) (laughs) and i'd be you know not only right so just before i read this poem i just must tell you by the way that i've just uh, been offered um a professorship at oxford but i wasn't sure whether to take that because there was one at um at uh, stanford in, in 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 the united states of america and so I wasn't, I was caught between those. So instead I went to Hamburger Max and bought a hamburger. Mm. Sort of thing. <laughs> but but I, I, get, I have been subjected to those conversations quite often where people start telling you. I remember seeing a guy, um, a painter who I used to know when we were young and wild and silly together, and seeing him about 25, 30 years later, I said, oh, g'day, how are you? And he said, oh, Robin, nice to see you. Look, I am just uh, had an exhibition uh, um, at such and such. And I said, why don't you shove your exhibition up your ass? You know, I was just saying hello because we hadn't seen... (laughs) 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 Oh, he just had an exhibition, had he? Oh, that's good, yes. Mm. mm. How interesting. (laughs) Oh my gosh, but I think you tend to do that when you're talking to other people who you know make art because, I don't know, it just always feels like a some form of competition. Not yes. that anybody wants it to. Um, it just no, but it sort of does push up a bit like that, doesn't it? And, yeah. um, and in a, many ways it's a pity because art can be a lot of fun. And in this uh, country town where we are, there's a sort of thing called brag which is the Braidwood Regional Art Group. And I'm not a member of that because I don't join things. But it's a good thing. I go to there when they're having an exhibition, I go and have a look. They have all sorts of different works of art by different people of different ages living in this small town, none of whom are on some big uh, career path, but all of whom, when you look at their works, they've had sort of, fun, creative fun making this thing or, you know, doing this, either being very real, re- representational in what they've done and highly skilled or just by being silly and having fun and making crazy sort of statements and things. And it's it's really a nice thing, but if they, if they were being controlled by an art dealer, the, it wouldn't be as playful and interesting. Yeah, and you can tell too, as an audience member, as a reader, that the creator has had fun. Yes, you can, can't you? Yep. And that in itself, for the for the for the reader, is a real reward when you feel is, that they're um, playing this, uh, having had this fun. And I remember years and years ago when I was when I was writing, someone telling me that what you've got to do, Robin, is you've got to obey the sonata form where you have the first third of the book is introducing the characters and the situation the middle bit is the drama and the problems and so on and the last bit is the resolution so it's just the same structure as a musical sonata and i'm listening to this person telling me this i'm thinking holy cow you know i've got to 
how can I escape? Please, please. <laughs> and this guy Hartman comes along and he says, oh, hi, Robin, how are you going? <laughs> would, you, would you like a, a white lightning? I say, what's that, Hartman? He says, oh, that's methylated spirits with milk. <laughs> Delicious. Have you ever heard of white lightning before? No, it's terrifying. <laughs> I it was actually drinking that. And that was the sort of thing that these guys, I used to sit on, as, on a railway station at night with, up on the Murray area. They were drinking white lightning. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Whereas I'd be, drink, I'd be drinking bottles of cheap sweet sherry. Right. Um, because I wasn't going to drink white lightning. I didn't dare. And these people were drinking something which was wiping them off the <laughs> Off the thing because it was a dead cheap way of getting absolutely smashed. God, that's amazing. Um, is there another that you would like to read? Oh, let's have a geezer. Just wait a minute. Um, one of the nice things Phil did with this book is putting that poem, I think it's too difficult to read, all around the cover. Yeah. The left side of the Temple of Sorrow. Phil's a really creative. Um, with he's a very good artist, but he's always very good with typography and so on and so forth. But that's too difficult to read, I think. It is a bit but tricky, but yeah, it's but absolutely it was, but it was, amazing. But it was a great idea, don't you think, for him to do that with it? Uh, let's have a look if there's something else here. Um, it's just so beautifully put together, the whole thing, um, isn't it? Yeah, and well, that, he. That's what Sorry, Peggy Keneally says that in the review as well. It's a real pleasure to look at as well as to read. So, Well, one of the things Phil did, and it's a bit Hartmanish in his, in his view, he deliberately made it not look like a book of poetry. You know, there's something when you open a book of poetry, all the poems are sort of snugly there. And these ah. ones fill the pages so much. They push the edges of the pages and so on. So it doesn't have that book of poetry look to it. That. Okay, I was wondering about that because they are sort of almost blown up to the very edges of the page and it must have been quite yeah. hard to make that work. But you're right, it doesn't feel like this is a poem, pay attention no. kind of thing. Yeah. And so that was a really clever thing that he did. He's a brilliant guy. He's a really uh, brilliant guy. Um, what about a small small suicide? Yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask you about that one. Yep. That, that's a nice happy little poem. Hey. <laughs> The dead appear to have forgotten how we devoted our time to killing and which deaths survive in the minds of the living. According to white-gloved curators at the cathartic Museum of the Third Age, the, the old woman's breath stopped years ago on her hard disk. After the boy went too high, despite the gravity of the situation and his failing to lift off, we satisfied ourselves with quotes in foreign tongues and with setting Samuel Barber's adagio to repeat I hate you I hate you I hate you I hate you not for myself for so much less than that but they made it look like more didn't they Bowser pump unleaded petrol gasoline gas if there had been gods we were incinerated Instead, superannuated to render the soul immortal. Every sequence of words is a step back from the edge of meaning to the mosh pit of verbal frenzy, amazing wit, sharp, reflective, and nicely put. I am his highness, 
dog at cue, scratching, hissing, allusions to review page notices, to melodies on the black notes, to poems, iambic as forever, to she-she signifiers of small depravities, to that inability to recognize a boy's intention to leap off something without capacity for elevation, to some point of departure set extraordinarily high. There will be words. That's a promise. Eyes open from where strange cousins of the insect world take up residence, where polyester mixed clothes melt into a grammar which adds up to a total missing of the point. That's a nice little optimistic poem by Hartman. Oh, you really got me there. I'm just going to need a moment. The, when, when it says... When it, you need, because, what you need is white lightning. I need a white lightning, <laughs> Jesus. But, I mean, it's... The thing is, with, with the amount of, of fun and joy and um, kind of casualness throughout the book, a poem like this really hits you between the eyes because when it comes to to recognize a boy's intention to leap off something without capacity for elevation. You're just like, oh, my God, wait a minute. What's – hang on. <laughs> something <laughs> horrible is about to happen. And obviously it's called a small suicide, so you have some warning. But, the, the yeah, just the, the force of it is um, quite amazing. And then the last line into a grammar which adds up to a total missing of the point to me that kind of brings you back around to again people at a funeral kind of saying nice things and looking pretty and kind of somehow despite good intentions just missing the point yeah i agree i mean funerals it's interesting you should bring that up because funerals are really like that aren't they there's something um (laughs) there's something something about funerals particularly someone who's really popular and suddenly 50 or 60 people turn up at the funeral and you can, if you, I'm sure if you were to watch, you'd notice that um, one person's looking across at this other person, signalling, hey, maybe we could copulate later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a meet-up. Little, little sort of back, sort of backstories to the to the main thing, which is carrying the coffin, you know, and um, and singing hymns and. <laughs> But there's all this other stuff going on at the same time. <laughs> or, oh my God, look, that looks like a polyester mix cloth in that suit. How, how working class. Goodness me. Shocking. Imagine being caught wearing a polyester mix suit. Goodness Wouldn't gracious. that be awful? It would be terrible. Um, speaking of hymns, I think I'm going to go out on a limb and say my favourite in the whole book is... Um, our help in ages past, our hope for tears to pour, which is, it's a relatively long poem, so I'm not going to force you to read it, but it is, it's a hilarious and dark story about home home makeover show gone wrong, if I'm reading it right. And uh, I was wondering about the title because I I looked it up and this poem from uh, Isaac Watts in the 1600s came up, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. Uh, hope for years to come, was it? Yeah, is that is that a poem that uh, you have memorized? Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Yeah, they used to sing that in at, at um, in churches. You know, oh God, oh help. 
ages past, a hope for years to come. A shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Oh, I like the look of that Sheila over there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, what you doing after? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> would you like some white lightning, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But these things stick in your mind, you know. These, um, I think, oh, you know, those things like that. I went to a, a small private school when I was uh, a kid, and we used to. It was a Christian school, and they we used to have once a week there'd be a service. I wasn't a boarder, but they'd have a, a one of the school days, and we'd all sing those sorts of things, and they stick in your mind. And it's a very pretty, very optimistic and neat poem, the Isaac Watts poem. Um, so it's wonderful to read it either before or after you read Hartman's poem. It's a highly yeah. recommend that. Anyone who's listening? Yep. Well, well it. Yeah. What do you reckon? What do you reckon? Not too shabby. Would you like to take us out on a on a final one? Okay. Now let's have a look. What have we got? Do we want a bit of unmitigated filth or um, maybe some spiritually uplifting, something spiritually uplifting? Oh, what do you reckon? That's a hard choice. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Did we, do, we, did, we did the green, did we do the green banana? No. Oh, I definitely want to do the green banana. Yes. That's very spiritually uplifting, yeah, don't you think? Yeah, this is a great one. <laughs> the green banana. The green banana was the start of my problems. There it was between the apples and the cherries. Green as a frog in full spring. I really loved it. Same as I love caramel and custard. The green banana, it said to me, you can't eat me with custard on account of you like me too much. But I saw red and boiled up a huge bowl of stuff, then peeled, chopped up and threw in my green banana. My wife, she asked what the hell I was doing, saying... That was her bowl, but I replied that it's my banana, baby. Threw her in too. Why the hell not? Gobbled it all up. The banana was excellent, but the wife really didn't taste so good and a bit bony, even with the caramel caramel custard coating. Years later, I was driving around the streets of Wagga when this huge aged banana pulled up beside me at the lights, doof music out of the wound-down window, set into its brown-spotted, mouldy, long-past, peelable skin. What was That was when I lost it. My next loss was traction, finished up under a mega-semi, kind of all sticky and brown and sweet and yuck-brown. Sorry, there were some reading problems there. No, that's fine. That's totally fine. Do you want to do it one more time just to get it perfect? Or are you happy with that? I'm happy with that. Sweet. What do you reckon? I'm we're not, not, we're not, not worried. Impe- we're, not, we're not impeccable, particularly Hartman. <laughs> I mean, it would be but, weird if it was perfect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a bloody hopeless git. <laughs> <laughs>